Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the book of Romans as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon entitled, Strive for Unity. If you would like to join us, please turn to chapter 4 in Ephesians as we look at verses 1 through 6. Children, you guys can be dismissed uh, to your Bible study. One more thing um, that I do want to let you know, if you're involved in reading the call to worship, um, if you'd be willing to meet just briefly after the service, just two, three, four minutes, something like that, and I'll pass along the schedule and things for this year. All right, we are in Ephesians chapter four this morning. Ephesians chapter four, uh, another installment in the brief New Year series, which I'm intending to end next week with the uh, charge to the Hikis and the charge to the church as we do a send off for them. But Ephesians chapter four, we're going to read verses one through six, and then, uh, then I'll pray and ask for the Lord's help as we study. So Ephesians four, beginning in verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Our Father, we come. Lord, we're opening your word and we are asking that you would enable us to meet with you in your word. Father, you have designed it so that where your word is read, studied, preached, there you will meet with your people. And so, Father, we are asking that you'll give us grace. We are seeking to draw near to you. Please, oh God, draw near to us. We want to know you, know your ways, learn your purposes, see how you have made this world, how you're revealing your glory. So we ask, God, that you'll give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is humble and able to receive. Please give us the grace of the Spirit that we need so that we are enabled to worship in the way that we ought. So Father, please come and help. Bless me to preach. Uh, Father, the work that I need to do here for it to be helpful and useful, please bless. And all of us, oh God, give us grace to receive, to receive your word and respond appropriately. Father, please bless our young ones as they're back in their Bible study, oh God. Father, please open their eyes as they encounter your word. Bring salvation of souls there, we pray as well. Father, have mercy and bless us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Shortly after, he went to the cross, bore the wrath of the Father, died in the stead, in the place of sinners, offered his life as the guilt offering for sin, was buried and rose from the dead. As he was hanging on the cross, 
nearly uh, nearing the time where he would give up his spirit, he said, it is finished. When he said it is finished, what, what did he mean by that? Well, it's a jam-packed statement. It refers to a, a lot of truths, but one of the chief truths, one of the major truths that it means is the, the price necessary to purchase souls from hell, it is paid, it is paid in full, it is finished. Jesus was doing the work to build the church. Then 50 days later, the Holy Spirit came from heaven fell on the apostles. The apostles preached the gospel, the, the message of salvation in Christ, what Jesus came to do to save souls from hell for all who will come to him in faith. They preached that message. Thousands of souls heard it and believed. In believing, they were made new, born again, and the New Testament church was born. Jesus was building his church from heaven, from his throne, orchestrating all things. He was building his church, the book of Acts. Then continues to follow the, the history, the account of Jesus continuing from heaven through the Holy Spirit, moving, ordaining, stirring, orchestrating his people on earth to continue to build his church. As Christ's people were used of him to go and make the gospel known and more souls entered the kingdom. And as more souls would enter the kingdom, new congregations were formed and organized. Jesus was building his church, church with a capital C, the church universal, as local churches were being formed more and more. And for the last 2000 years, what he began, what has continued, he is continuing still today. Here we are, each one of us, someone shared the gospel with us. We came to faith in Christ. We are continuing that work. More churches are being planted. Jesus is still building his church. The church is the plan of God to accomplish his agenda in the world in the universe. So we looked last week at what is the chief end of God? So we asked the question, what is the supreme reason? Why did God make the world? Why did God orchestrate history as he has? So what is, where's it all moving? What's the result that God is seeking to establish? And we saw all throughout scripture, he answers that question again and again, the chief end of God, the reason behind it all is God is displaying his glory. God is manifesting his divine excellencies. That's Jonathan Edwards kind of language. He is manifesting his might, his power, his wisdom, his judgment, his wrath, and the glory of his grace so that angels and men will know him, see it all, and we will marvel. We will respond in worship appropriately. God displays his glory in a lot of ways. The works of creation display his glory. That is a major way that he shows it. But scripture shows that what he has done in Christ, the work of redemption, that is the mountain. 
That is the pinnacle of all of the ways that God displays his greatness. Okay, so when you see a sunset and you think, wow, that's beautiful. Okay, in your heart, you have marveled at the wisdom, beauty, power of God. You have had a moment of worship. Okay, God has revealed his glory and you have responded in worship. That's good. God, God reveals himself in thousands of different ways, but how he reveals himself in Christ, in the work of redemption, this is the pinnacle. This is the, the chief of the ways that God is displaying his glory. Listen, listen, Christian, every single believer your very existence as a child of God is a display of his glory. The, the very breath that you draw, the acts of obedience that you give, just a life of believing and living out that faith is a display of the glory of God. Because every soul that turns to Christ, that represents a soul, okay? Who were we before we turned to Christ and where would we be without Christ? Scary thought. Who were we before Christ? We were on our own, doing our own thing, lost, blind, walking, marching, skipping on our way to hell and happy to be doing it, doing our own thing, living as we want, ignoring God. And, we, and, and, and then God came to us. God came to us, showed us the truth of ourselves, revealed the truth of how to be made right with him through Christ, revealed the, the glory of what the gift that he's given. He drew us to himself when we were uninterested. Every soul that turns to Christ is a trophy of grace. It, it's God showing, look what I can do. We see a little bit of portion of that. We still give way too much credit to ourselves. <laughs> We still kind of have this idea that like it comes from me. When we come to the day uh, 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 on the last day when we're shown the reality and our minds are, are given the ability to understand reality as it really is, we will see that actually every single good intention ounce of faith was all a gift of the grace of God and we will fall in worship. What Christ has done is the chief of the ways that God is revealing his glory. In Ephesians 3, so just right before the uh, passage we read in 4 there, we're told that God is displaying his incredible wisdom and, and power and glory. It is all being manifested through the church. You might jot down verses nine through 11 there somewhere in chapter three and kind of look at it. God is manifesting through the church, his glory to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's agenda is that he is displaying his glory. And one of the ways he is doing this, the chief of the ways is that through the church, he is showing the magnitude of his grace. What happens through the church is the very accomplishing of his purposes. What is God doing in history? Understand what he's doing in redeeming souls and gathering us together as his people and you understand his agenda. If all of that is the case, then that helps us understand why Satan hates the church 
the way that he does. To you who are in Christ, your very existence as a blood-bought child of God represents everything that he hates. Your very participation in worship, the worship of the living God is a trumpet announcing his demise. Satan is going to, for all of eternity, burn like a writhing worm in the flames of hell. And every breath that you draw is a reminder to him of his defeat and humiliation. He hates Jesus. He hates you. And he hates his church. This is why the New Testament regularly warns us about his schemes, about what he wants to do to the church, his attacks, his temptations. Jesus means the church to be this beautiful display of his glory. Satan is always working to try and rob that glory, corrupt the holiness, uh, distract us from the mission and Create division, drive wedges of disunity within the family of the church. This isn't the only way that he works. The New Testament tells us about all kinds of ways that he is trying to attack the church. He's got a, a, a circle uh, of temptations around the church uh, all the time, trying to attract, uh, attack every single aspect of who we are and what we do. But this is one of the big ones. If he can create division within a church, all that we are called to do all that we are called to be, the work, the witness, the display of his glory. It is all either wrecked or at the very least hindered. And so repeatedly, the New Testament calls the church to pursue unity. This passage in Ephesians 4 is one of those places in the New Testament where we are called to this. So I want to take a look at it with you this morning. As we look at the passage and how to study it, I think it makes sense to take it in two parts. Uh, the, the main theme that is there is the call to unity. So first part, I want to just uh, spend a bit of a time explaining the unity that Christ calls the church to. And then secondly, look at some principles of unity that are laid out that we're instructed to obey into how we uh, promote and preserve unity. So two parts. Here's the first one, the unity of the spirit. Now, the book of Ephesians um, is laid out. You know, we've referenced this in the past because we find ourselves there every once in a while. Pastor Ben, when he gets the opportunity to preach, he's preaching through the book. But if you remember, the book of Ephesians is laid out um, as several of the New Testament books are. It's laid out kind of in two parts. The first part of the book is just straight the preaching of doctrine. Glorious, deep gospel truths are, are preached. And then comes the section of then application. So here's practical matters of obedience. In Ephesians, it breaks up just real cleanly and nicely. There are six chapters. The first three is the heralding of the gospel truths. And then starting in chapter four, and then going to the end, the last three chapters are matters of practical obedience. And of course, there's theology even in the obedience section because theology pervades everything that we do. 
But you notice at the start of chapter four, here's where this turn comes. It's got the therefore, okay? Therefore, now we begin to enter, here are matters of obedience. And as you look, there are all kinds of different sections, okay? All kinds of different sections that go through here. The, the, the first 16 verses of chapter four are all pertaining to life in fellowship with your local church family. Life in fellowship with your local church family. And he addresses several things to that. But the first part there, verses two through six, he's addressing how we relate to one another. Uh, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves, look back at, at verse one there and kind of see the appeal that is given. So he starts there with, therefore, I implore you. So he is, he's appealing. Uh, he, he's, he's saying, I, I am urging you. I am begging you walk in a manner that is worthy. Uh, your, your walk there is referring to your daily life. It's referring uh, to uh, uh, your behavior, your thoughts, your lifestyle, your actions, your affections. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So, so what is the calling with which you have been called? This is referring to the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel, if you're new to the Bible, the gospel is the word that the Bible uses to describe this most central message and the most important message that is in the scripture. The message of what Christ has done to save souls from hell. You are invited to come and be made right with God. You're not okay on your own apart from Christ. Come to Christ. Come believe. Come trust in him. Come be united with him and you'll be made right with God and receive eternal life. It is an invitation to come. That's the gospel call. And Christian, kind of what is being emphasized here? What God has done in Christ, it is the most glorious rescue, the most glorious gift, the most amazing display of love in all of history, in all of the universe. What God has done in Christ, it is glorious. And what he's saying here is, I'm appealing to you, live like it. Live like it. Know it, remember it, and live like it. Paul the prisoner. You see that in verse one as well. Paul the prisoner imprisoned for the gospel, he, he's making this appeal. Do, do you see how it's, it's even a more powerful way of saying something than even just a command? So other places, there's a command that's similar to this. So it's not like it doesn't exist. But here, he doesn't state it in the, word of a com the way of a command. What he's saying is, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I'm in prison for the gospel, Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm urging you, I'm appealing to you. The gospel is glorious, Jesus is king. He saved you with a glorious salvation. Let's live like it. He's worthy. Let's live like it. That first verse then applies to everything that will come in, in the next three chapters. So later in chapter four, he even gets to just really practical things like just matters of like, don't lie to people. Okay. Well, this verse one serves as an introduction, a call to all of it. But where the Holy Spirit then begins the section of application for 16 verses, life in fellowship with a local church family. It is not God's plan. 
It was not the plan of the Father for Jesus to die, save individual souls, and then those souls to then just go on and go do their own personal Bible study for all their life. Okay? It was also not Jesus' plan to save souls and then little Bible study in small groups form, and that be it. Now, by all means, read your Bible yourself. Join in small groups. It'd be very helpful to you. But ultimately, okay, and, and what, what is the, the, the purpose for which he died and what he was forming, Jesus formed the church. Now, I know we've said some of these kinds of things before, but these are the kinds of things we have to keep repeating here, okay? You've all heard people say some things like, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church, okay? Love Jesus, but I, I don't need that institutionalized religion as though we made all of this up and we're just kind of doing our own thing. Listen, Jesus is the one who formed the church, bought us with his blood, but didn't just leave us as individuals. It's his idea. He's the one who gathered us together. He's the one who, who places local congregations and then tells us how to operate, tells us how to live, tells us how to relate. Listen, even the authority and leadership structure that exists inside of churches, we didn't invent this, okay? This wasn't like uh, us looking at the world and be like, okay, what's a good business model? Yeah, let's try that in the church. We do what Jesus said. He has this ordered out. That's actually later in chapter four that he brings up some of those kinds of things here. Jesus is the one who created the church and he tells us how to operate. When we gather, what are we supposed to be doing? He tells us. We have a mission. What is it? He tells us. Our marching orders are given by Christ. And part of that, he tells us in, within local congregations, how we are to relate to one another, how we are to live in harmony with one another. So, so, so listen, the church has... I mean, let's just throw a number out there. Let's just say 200 different things we're supposed to be doing. The church has 200 different works, acts of obedience, missions that we're supposed to be engaging in. And nearly all of it will either be wrecked or at the very least hindered by division or disunity in the church. Satan is all the time encircling local congregations, trying to distort them in any way that he can gain a foothold. I mean, it comes even in, in small things, and it's not small, but even subtle things like distracting us from the mission. It is possible for churches to do nice things, good things, things that would make the world really like us and get distracted by taking good things, but make them the main thing and so miss the mission that he has given us. He is all the time working to tempt, all, trying to corrupt the holiness. But one of the ways that he works to try and destroy, try and to cor corrupt, try and degrade is to hammer wedges of division in the unity of the church. Because when division exists, every part of who we are, what we're called to be, what we're called to do is all hindered. 
There is some degree of unity that is demanded before we're going to be able to do anything together. And the more unity that exists, the more we will flourish, the more glory we'll give to God, the more fruit we will bear, the more work we'll be able to accomplish, the more the gospel will be made known. And, and listen, just even very practically, the more each of us will individually grow in Christ, the more unity that there is. God wants his church to shine as a light in the darkness. Now, there's a lot of ways we're supposed to do that. So within the, within the church, godly marriages arranged according to biblical principles, when that's happening within a church family, we shine as a light. We shine as a light because we're showing the ways of God are wise. Look at the beauty of what he made. Godly households ordered the way that uh, scripture instructs us to. When we're living that and that's happening, we shine as a light. There are a lot of ways that believers within the church are to shine as a light, but unity is one of them. While the world is all the time losing their minds in hatred and division, Christ wants his church to shine as a light in our unity. That even in the midst of disagreement and conflict and such, we are able to love and care for one another. And, and you know, this, this message is not a reaction to what happened this week. If you're thinking like, okay, you know, he scrambled to like make the sermon. This sermon has been planned for months. Okay. But what an illustration from this very week when in our nation, there is so much hostility, hatred, and division. And what happens in the world is the world will gather themselves into little groups of, of like-mindedness according to what matters to them the most. They'll gather themselves into, into little pockets of political ideas or just you name it, just all over the kind of place. They gather themselves into little group and whenever they look across the aisle, there's hatred, there's bitterness, there's disgust. What a picture it is of the glory of God and what the gospel does. When within church families, there will be disagreement on earthly matters and how to view certain political things. But instead of hatred, there is love and care and even fellowship for one another. Christ wants his church to show his glory by modeling unity and the beauty of love and care and service to the world. So verse three calls us to the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, one of the things we need to be cautious of when we talk about unity is that we must be careful that we not strive after a unity that is actually evil. Because yes, that, that does exist. Okay. A band of serial killers can join together and enjoy some kind of unity. Probably not for real long, but they could have some unity. Unity in and of itself is not necessarily godly. The center of the circle, what it is that unifies us must be that which is worthy of uniting for. Listen, the Bible never calls us to peace 
just for peace's sake. The Bible calls us to Philippians 2. We're going to turn there in a little bit. But in Philippians 2, we're called to be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What unites us has to be the right thing. That's why this passage refers to the unity of the spirit. It's not just any kind of unity we're after. Now, you could be thinking, well, what would be so bad about that? Well, listen, there is a temptation that churches face because we could try to find the source of our unity in shared interest, shared hobbies. People find ways to, to have fellowship with one another for all kinds of different common ground. Okay, so that, that's, that's the easiest way to join in some friendships, relationships, and have fellowship with people. Okay, two guys are into hunting, they can find a way to get along. There's a shared interest that is there. As the church, we are not called to, to form the, the, the foundation of our unity in different, you know, earthly kinds of interests or hobbies or age groups or skin color or, or all of these different kinds of earthly things. What is to unite us? What is to be the foundation that joins us together in a bond of peace is the intention of one purpose. What is it? It's Christ. It's actually what he's going to refer to uh, later in this passage in verses four through six, where he talks about one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is the foundation of our unity. This is what unites us together with Christ. You may remember Paul writing to, to the Corinthians and saying, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It doesn't mean that it's you know, evil to have friendships and common interests with other kinds of people. Paul was not against that. But what he was saying was when it came to what we're going to build the church on, what I came to you and the source of our unity was Christ, Christ and him crucified. We're called to the unity of the spirit, not just any other kind of unity. And yes, the Holy Spirit is at work to bring this unity in the same way that the Holy Spirit is always at work to sanctify individual Christians. The Holy Spirit is at work seeking to bring uh, believers into unity. So you may remember some of what we have seen in Romans eight, when we studied adoption, for instance, if you are trusting in and following Christ, you have been adopted. You've been adopted by the father and that makes you spiritual family with everybody else that has been adopted by the father. Union exists. There is a real concrete union that you have with every other soul who is in Christ. What we are called to is unity. There is union. We are to strive for unity. It's similar to marriage. So a husband and a wife uh, might be in conflict for a season of time. They don't have unity, but make no mistake, there is union. There is a real and concrete union, a bond that they have. What they are to work for is unity together. This is what the church is called to. We have a union. It's real and it's concrete. We are to strive to have our hearts knit together in a bond of fellowship, love for one another, care for one another, ministry to one another, desire for one another's good. 
We are called to unity. We are not to have unity in false teaching or false gospels. That would be a wrong kind of unity. But also bear in mind that to another person who is genuinely in Christ, we might disagree on quite a few different things But just because someone holds a different view on baptism or something doesn't mean that they're holding to a false gospel. We have to know what to divide over and what not to divide over. If anyone is in Christ, there is a union that we have with them. Listen, there is a kind of unity that we should have with the church universal. So even believers in in various denominations and such that we can talk about that on a different day. Here, we're primarily seeing the call to the local church, the household of God and the unity that we are called to. God desires that the members of a church live in harmony as a body. His language he uses in 1 Timothy is that of a household as a people in fellowship. God desires that we have unity. Well, secondly, not only does the passage call us to unity, but there gives us instructions for obtaining it, promoting it, preserving it. He gives us principles of living in unity. So that's the second part here, principles of living in unity. Uh, I, I think there are three of them here in this passage. So here's the first one. We must individually commit to living out character and attitude that promotes and preserves unity. Each one of us living out character and attitude that promotes and preserves unity. Look at verse two as we see that there. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Let's think through each of those real quick. He begins with the call to live with all humility. Humility is about how you regard yourself. It's about how highly you think of yourself. So the New Testament just plainly tells us, do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not think of yourself as great. Do you know why it says that? Because it's true. (laughs) It's not calling you to pretend. Do not be wise in your own estimation because you aren't. Okay? This is reality. We're not wise. We're not righteous. We're not great. We are fallen sinners who struggle with toddler-like lust and desires. We, we are not to think of ourselves as high and exalted because we are to think of ourselves with accuracy and not be delusional. Okay? When I am impressed with myself, and yeah, it happens, and so it does with you. When I am impressed with myself, I'm being delusional. I'm not thinking of myself accurately. Uh, That's pride. That's pride. And pride is a ruiner of relationships. Pride comes out in hundreds, hundreds of different ways, hundreds of different fruits that grow on the fruit of pride from selfishness to insistence on always being right and getting my way to a refusal to forgive because how dare you offend me? Pride comes out in hundreds of different ways. Um, Philippians 2, if you'll turn over there with me for a moment, it's the book right after uh, Ephesians. In Philippians chapter 2, there's a well-known passage there. I want to read the first part, uh, part, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... 
If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion. So he's kind of pleading and saying, listen, guys, if there is any of this in your hearts, then here's his appeal. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then that next passage goes on to describe Jesus uh, humbling himself, though God taking the form of a servant and even dying on the cross as a criminal. Now, the difference between humility in us and humility in Jesus is this. Uh, Jesus is wise. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. And yet he chose to put others before himself. That passage then calls us to imitate him. In Titus 3, verse 2, it says this. We're told to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men, for we also once were foolish ourselves. Now that last line I find very helpful. We also were once foolish ourselves. Christian, it is helpful to regularly remember who we were before Christ grabbed us and then to try to consider where would I be if he had not. I know, scary kinds of thoughts. Where would I be? Who was I before Christ grabbed us? We all once lived lost, blind, walking in rebellion, doing our own thing. And that helps us remember in humility so that we're able to relate to one another with this kind of humility that is not self-centered, but selfless. The next thing he mentions in verse two there. So with all humility, and then he also mentions with gentleness. So not cold, not irritable, not hard to deal with, but gentle. And then the next one, with patience. Uh, flip over to another helpful verse, First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. And find verse 14. Look what it says here. So we urge you brethren, so instructions to believers, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Do you know when you have to be patient? It's precisely when it's testing your patience. It's precisely when you're being pushed on a little bit. So we all are able to find people that we just kind of naturally click with. That's, that's a wonderful thing. That's, that's, that's great. But when you're with somebody and you're naturally clicking and it's not hard at all to have joy and friendship with, that's wonderful, but it's not patience. <laughs> patience is being exerted precisely when who you're with is a bit of a stretch. It's kind of hard. Maybe it's the personality conflict or even disagreement that's going on there. Patience is required when it is hard to do. Proverbs 19.11 uh, tells us good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. We're called to be slow to anger. 
um, long suffering, uh, overlook offenses, be patient with one another. And then next in verse two, very similar to the call to patience, showing tolerance, showing tolerance. Now, tolerance is one of the most misunderstood words of our day. Uh, for about the last 15-ish years or so, maybe a little bit longer, uh, our culture has been changing the definition of that word, okay? So today, the modern definition that people kind of operate with is, is to, uh, intolerance is anytime you disagree with anybody, okay? You disapprove of anything, you're being intolerant, okay? Well, that's wrong. And they would call that statement intolerant, okay? If, to disagree, okay, it, it, that is not intolerant. The very definition of the word is bearing with someone while disagreeing or being in conflict. That's its definition. In love, in kindness, showing courtesy and respect, bearing with someone while there is some kind of tension or conflict or disagreement, something like this, it is needing to bear. So if you have no disagreement with someone and it's all jiving and it's really enjoyable, that's wonderful, but that's not tolerance. Tolerance is precisely when it's kind of hard to bear with this person. It is loving, caring, serving, being kind to someone when it takes work to do so. And this reminds us of, this reminds us of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about, if you love those who love you back, how is that different than the pagans? Jesus said, I, I'm calling you to be different. I'm calling you to love even your enemies and those who despise you. It is a sign of maturity to be able to show kindness and genuinely from the heart want good for this person that there's some kind of disagreement or difficulty with. Actually, on that note, tur turn to Philippians once again with me, please. Philippians chapter four and, and find verse two. Uh, I'm always amazed at how, how much the Bible can say in so few of words. In Philippians four, now let me give you just a little bit of introduction here. The letter to the Philippians is a letter where uh, Paul gives a lot of commendations, okay? So to the Corinthians, there's a lot of correction, okay? Uh, even some messages of just open rebuke because they had a lot of stuff going on. That's not the letter to the Philippians. To the Philippians, he just had lots of gratitude that he poured out to them and, and commends them, encourages them over and over again. He says, you guys have joined with me in the work of the gospel. You guys have been a major blessing to me. That's all through Philippians. So he, he very much... Was, was, if we can say, proud of that church at Philippi. But one matter that he does address, look at verse two. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. He actually goes on in the next verse to talk about how helpful these two women had been in the work of the gospel, that both of them had been just wonderful servants of the gospel, but he is telling them a message here. He tells them, get along, live in harmony in the Lord. You know, one of the things that Paul doesn't do uh, is tell uh, Euodia and, and Syntyche, I want you both to write me a letter and I want you to plead your case and we're going to figure out who's right. Not what he does. It's not about winning. That's always what our flesh wants. When we're in an argument, our flesh wants to win. He doesn't say that. He says, Live in harmony 
in the Lord, in the Lord, meaning you're, you're Christians. You have common ground in Christ. Find a way to get along. It may be that you, Odie and Syntyche, we're never going to be best friends. Jesus never calls you to be best friends with everybody. Okay. We're going to have different levels of unity uh, with different believers. We're all going to have some of those folks that the fellowship just clicks beautifully. And let me encourage you, find that. I'm serious. It is a game changer in your walk with Christ. Um, to have a David and Jonathan kind of friendship, uh, to, to find mentors in the faith, those are game changers in your walk with Christ. If you find that, you're going to see your faith, your walk just dramatically increase. Find those things and spend great amounts of time with those folks. That's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But we're all also going to have some of those that friendship or unity is kind of difficult with, but still we are called to love and care and show courtesy to one another in this and to do so in love, in love. He says, that's the last part of, of that, that this first principle to do so in love, which means at the very least, there is a desire for the blessing of this person. I desire this person to grow in Christ to glorify him and to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Second principle, verse three, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the word diligent, or if you've got the ESV eager to preserve, there is a call here to work. There's a call here to effort, work hard at preserving Unity, unity within a church will not just happen. We all love it when we find those folks that it just comes easily to, that's great. But even in those kinds of relationships, if you go deep enough and spend enough time with another person, two sinners are incapable of having any kind of relationship that goes deep without there being conflict. Eventually, you're going to have to forgive one another, work through some things. Unity is not just going to happen automatically. Unity has to be worked for, okay? That's, that's one of the reasons why sometimes we call marriage the school of holiness, you are going to have to work on dying to your flesh. You are going to have to work at forgiveness. You are going to have to work at unity because when you're dating and honeymoon, all those kinds of things, it might've come very easily. It will not always. There is work that is demanded. And this is the case with churches as well. And even more so, see, this is one of those things that makes the church so unique. We're so unique. You have to understand there is no other group on the planet like the church. In the world, people cluster up in groups and they can find unity around their, their common ground. But it's always things of the earth. So, you know, two families who cheer for the same football team, they can find some common ground and they link together in groups or shared political ideas. People in the world, they form themselves into these kinds of groups. The church, we're the only group on the planet that joins together and we'll have a lot of varying opinions in earthly matters. We'll cheer for different football teams, crazy stuff like that. We'll form in all kinds. Here is all these people joining together and we have a thousand different views of things of the earth. But our common confession is Jesus 
is Lord. And that's what unites us. What unites us is not the shared interest of the earth. What unites us is Christ, our common salvation. And what that means though is there will be work that is necessary to have unity. Unity demands work. It demands effort. It requires death, death to the flesh, to brush off offenses, to overlook hurts, to make myself get over stuff. The work of forgiveness. The work of forgiveness is some of the hardest work on the earth to genuinely from the heart forgive. Thirdly, we're called to remember the unity of the Trinity. Look at verses four through six with me again. Back in Ephesians four, starting in verse four, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All right, what is happening here is very similar to what Jesus prays in John 17. I believe this is what was in Paul's mind. The Holy Spirit brought us to his mind when he was writing this section right here. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, John 17, he prayed for the church down through the centuries. Now we reference that quite a bit, call it the high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed for the church down through the centuries, prayed for the biggest of things, prayed for the things that matter into eternity. So if you wanna see what matters to God, read John 17. And here's one of the things that Jesus mentions at least three times in that prayer. He prays that we will be perfected in unity. He prays that we believers would be made one. But then here's how he words it. It's glorious. So he is praying to the father and he prays, make them one even as we are one. Jesus bases the unity that the church is to have and strive for on the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the unity of the Trinity. Here he reminds us, there's one body, referring to the body of Christ, the church, okay? So we're not forming, ultimately, what is happening in the world is not the forming of different bodies of Christ. Ultimately, there is one body of Christ. There's one spirit, meaning God is not sending out different kinds of spirits who are moving us in different directions. There's one Holy Spirit and he is working to move all believers the same direction to the same purposes. There is, we're called in one hope, meaning there are not different gospels. There's one shared common hope that we have. There's one Lord referring to the Lord Jesus. There's one faith, meaning it's not acceptable to think that there are, you know, these different ways to come to God. No, there's one gospel, one hope, one Lord. And so only one faith in that one Lord that is true and it unites us together. And we are to remember that there's one baptism, now, I'm going to resist the temptation at this point to break into an entire sermon on baptism. I think there are ramifications here. There is one legitimate baptism, not many different kinds. And that baptism is to be a uniting factor, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There's one God and Father. We have been adopted by the same Father. 
So even when you encounter a believer, a follower of Christ who has some, what you consider out there views on some different subjects. I mean, even if they cheer for the wrong football team, you still have a union with them because of one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism. But his point in recounting all of this is to rally us to remember it. Rally us to remember it. Whoever it is that you share all of these things with, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, whoever you share that with, you have a lot in common. Do you see how it would be missing the boat? Big time missing the boat. If we were able to have sweet unity with people in the world based on earthly temporal kinds of common interest, and yet we couldn't have unity with a follower of Christ who we have all of this in common with. One body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. When you just ask the question, what matters into eternity? We have more in common with the believer in the North Korean labor camp than we have ever met than your closest of family members who is not in Christ, even if you share a bed with them. This is what unites people longer and greater than anything. So let us labor for it. Let us labor for it. Let us strive to preserve, to promote unity. Let us labor to overlook offenses. Let us labor to forgive as we have been forgiven. Let's glorify God by living out what it means to be the body of Christ. And, and, and a brief word that I say to you, if you're here and you don't have these things we talked about of one Lord, one hope, one faith, one God and Father, if you have never united yourself to God like this, the message of the Bible is that you must be or you do not have eternal life. You are facing an eternity of hell. You're not right with God. You're not united in this one body by you being good or trusting your religion or church attendance or anything you think you have. You need Christ. You must come to Christ. Make him your Lord by submitting to him in true faith, trusting in Christ. You come to Christ, believe, confess your faith to him. As scripture says, whoever believes will not be put to shame. Whoever believes, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Turn to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're amazed when we see your purposes and we think about it from the perspective of eternity. Father, we pray that we will please you. Father, we pray that we will glorify you. We, we want to honor you in all of the ways uh, that you call the church to be and to do, our, our mission, our holiness, all of it. And Father, we also pray for this. Help us, O oh Lord, that we will live in harmony with one another. Lord, that you will knit our hearts together in a bond of peaceful fellowship, that there will be love and care to one another. Lord, please bless us as we're going to leave. I pray, Lord, that we will glorify you as we go on and live our everyday lives. Please be with us, and we pray these things through Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you.
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.